Well, good morning. I don't know what kind of a sound a mockingbird makes, but I understand they imitate well, right? So I'll try to imitate the uh, previous speakers. Say the same thing, but slightly different words. I got up this morning and was getting dressed, and my, my wife Karen uh, looked at my name tag, and she said, you didn't fill in the letters on your, your name yet. And I said, oh, no, my first expectation disappointed. Will God still love me? Sin boldly. I want to start with this passage in the book of Romans um, where uh, St. Paul says, the just shall live by faith. And I'm going to use the word justice a lot there, dike in Greek or dikaiosene. Um, but it refers to all those things we've been talking about, our expectations, being right, drawing the line between good and evil and placing ourselves on the good side, uh, all those things by the word uh, just. And I want to ask, well, what does this mean for you and me today? What's the difference between having a fragile soul, that's the one that engages in self-justification, and a robust soul, one that lives out of the power of God's grace that is placed within us by the Holy Spirit? And I love the theme here of the Mockingbird Conference We've got expectations and the struggle to maintain those expectations and the word of grace provides us with relief. And there's power in relief. And uh, my, my theme will be sin boldly. I'll get back to that in a, in a few minutes. But I want to spend a lot of time on sin and just how it is that the Word of God's grace provides that kind of relief. Deep down, deep down in our quiet moments or even when we're not thinking about it, we are dimly aware of four things. First, we know we're going to die. Second, that all the I wants, what St. Augustine called concupiscence, all the things that I want, whether they're material possessions or success or uh, my neighbors thinking good of me, all of these things are going to disappear when we die. We also know the difference between good and evil and whether you're a Christian or not, you, you have this thought Maybe the good is eternal. And if I can somehow or other identify with the good, I'm going to beat this death thing. Oh, we seldom articulate all of these things in so many words, but they're going on uh, at a level just below our consciousness, and it has a lot to do with why it is uh, that we want to fulfill those expectations. And my term for this is the fragile soul, 
doesn't mean that you're a fragile human being, but there's a fragility to the soul that says, you know, if I can meet those expectations, if I can be identified with the eternal good, if I can own the justice, then somehow or other I've got a grip on eternal life. Well, let's start with a story. Yes, I like the term self-justification as a way of getting at it. And I want to start with the Adam and Eve story. I don't know if you can read the little line here. The spaceman is saying, uh, oh, no, don't do that. Let me give you an interpretation of the Adam and Eve story slightly different than maybe the standard And let's start with the serpent uh, talking with Eve about the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve takes a look at the fruit after the serpent had invited her to, and she says, gee, that looks pretty good to eat. And I want to just pause there for a second. Eve recognizes the good. Something within Eve as it is within you and me, we are naturally attracted to the good. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you know, and Baptists and Presbyterians are are modern-day Calvinists, you have the doctrine of total depravity which means we're not inclined to the good. I have a Presbyterian friend who says, you know, anybody who believes in total depravity can't be all bad. (laughs) Eve is not totally depraved. She is naturally inclined to the good, as you and I are. Then the next chapter in the story is, after Adam shares the apple with her, God comes walking through the garden, and he can't find Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? And the voice comes from behind a bush. Well, Eve and I are hiding here behind the bush. Why are you hiding? Well, we're naked, and we didn't want you to see us in our nakedness. Well, God thinks about this for a little minute, uh, for a minute, and Oh, uh, did you did you by chance eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, by this time Adam and Eve are coming out and uh, and uh, they're talking with God face to face, and uh, God presses the point. Adam, did you eat uh, the forbidden fruit? And Adam says, "Well, technically, I did." But it's not my fault. You see, the woman, the the woman who you gave me, she's the one that, you know, tempted me and I ate the apple. And uh, so God turns to Eve and says, Eve, is, is, is this true what Adam had just said? Well, technically it is, but you see, it's not my fault. The serpent beguiled me. And then maybe with a twinkle in her eye, she says to God, 
we know who made the serpent and put the serpent in the garden. So uh, when, when, when Martin Luther interprets this, uh, he says, isn't it interesting that Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent and they all end up blaming God. And uh, so what has happened here is that Adam and Eve have drawn a line between good and evil, placed themselves on the good side of the line, and if that means that God has to be on the evil side, so be it. And Ethan described uh, in different language a a few minutes ago, this is your and my everyday way of doing things. If you ponder it uh, in almost all of our interactions and frequently when we're all by ourselves thinking, we're drawing lines between good and evil and placing ourselves on the good side of the line. Why? Because we have this sort of intuitive assumption that the good is eternal and boy, that's where we want to be. And we are so desperate that we're willing to put God on the evil side. And the curious thing about the gospel is that God is on the evil side voluntarily. So it's sort of fruitless for you and me to draw that line between good and evil and think that we're going to be on the same side as eternity when God, in the humiliation of the cross has volunteered to be on the evil side of the line. Or when we draw the line, put ourselves on the, on the good side of the line, we're doing exactly what it takes to cut us off from the God of the gospel. Well, um, we're talking about law and gospel again. I want to emphasize I'm using the word uh, justice here. Uh, you can in, insert goodness or righteousness. That that word in uh, Romans and in uh, Galatians, dikaiosene, comes into English as either justification or righteousness. Uh, I uh, I like the word that I can't even pronounce that uh, David Zoll uh, puts in his book on law and gospel perf- performanceism. I misspelled it, I think. Uh, in a performancist paradigm, there is no distinction between our resume and our identity. God loves you and me out of God's grace because you're you and me, not because our resume looks good. A performancist mindset is one ensconced in law and the dread and exhaustion it produces. The gospel is aimed at giving us relief from that dread and exhaustion. Now the very structure, and I just want to repeat it here with this picture, is that we assume, I think it's true, but it doesn't matter whether it's true or false, we assume that justice, goodness, righteousness, that these things are eternal And we want those eternal things to rest within our soul. And if we fear they're missing, well, we're going to make it up. We're going to grasp it. We're going to hold it on our own. 
And part of the gospel message is, you know, you can have it all as a gift for free. That's the nature of God's grace. You don't have to own it. Now, in what follows, I would like to take a look at just one aspect of drawing the line between good and evil, putting ourselves on the good side, something that is exhausting, something from which we need relief, and that is scapegoating. When we draw the line between good and evil, as Adam and Eve did, they actually put God on the evil side and scapegoated God. So let me uh, describe this in a little bit more detail. Um, It's a lie. Uh, It's not a lie in the sense that you directly say something that's false. No, it's a lie in the sense that you create this kind of situation in which you and I look good and somebody else doesn't. So self-justification means identifying ourselves with the good and scapegoating helps nail it down because we identify somebody else with the evil. And I want to say scapegoating is really subtle. I'm going to use some non-subtle examples, but but watch how it works, okay? Um, there's nothing up there. <laughs> That's how subtle it is. Oh, there we go. All right, so Adolf Hitler now is, is giving a speech. And the first thing about scapegoating that you need to notice is that the person who does the scapegoating is good and the victim is evil. But then secondly, in a group situation, scapegoating is what binds us together. So Adolf Hitler now is trying to rally the German people, and he is trying to take control of the spirituality of the German people and arrest it from the churches. So he's going to draw a line between good and evil, put the churches on the evil side, and uh, Germany uh, on top. Note how it goes. National socialism, that's the real word for Nazi. National socialism is not a cult movement. Oh, good. Don't think of us as a cult. It's not a movement for worship. It is exclusively a folkic political doctrine based upon racial principles. Now, that, that, that sounds impressive. In its purpose, there is no mystic cult, only the care and leadership of a people defined by a common blood relationship. Therefore, we have no rooms for worship, but only the halls for the people. Note, subtly, we're drawing a line between good and evil. Worship centers, evil halls for the people, good. No open spaces for worship, but spaces for assemblies and parades. We have no religious retreats, but arenas for sports and playing fields 
and the characteristic feature of our places of assembly is not the mystical gloom of a cathedral. Do you feel like right now we're in the mystical gloom and we could get out, you know, in, onto the soccer field? Um, is not the mystical gloom of a cathedral, but the brightness and light of a room or hall which combines beauty with fitness for its purpose. Our worship is exclusively the cultivation of the natural, and for that reason, because natural, therefore, God willed. Our humility is the unconditional submission before the divine laws of existence so far as they are known to us. This is the classic spiritual but not religious position. Very spiritual, clearly away from the churches. But you and I have a certain critical awareness, but we really need to turn it up into high intensity. And note how other people talk and how you and I might talk. Just subtly comparing good and bad frequently is a way in which we draw lines between good and evil and the victim, the scapegoat, is on the evil side. Uh, more uh, brutally, uh, Hitler says that I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jews, I am fighting for the work of the Lord. So if, if you and I want to think, well, Adolf Hitler's an evil guy, note he doesn't think that. Uh, he's doing a good thing. In fact, he's doing God's will uh, with all that, uh, that he does. Now, one of the things about scapegoating, again, it's subtle. It's not stable. It's constantly shifting. So let's take a look at America during World War II. And uh, here we are uh, advertising for victory bonds. And whoever made this poster put the devil's horns on Hitler, okay? So now we're drawing a line between good and evil. We're putting the United States on the good side of the line. And by identifying Hitler with the devil, that's evil. I want to call this cursing. Cursing is the language we use when scapegoating, when drawing a line between our side, which is good, and the victim of our scapegoating. And we almost always judge the victim of our scapegoating as what? Evil. They might be weak. It might be some other negative things, but they're evil. Why? Because that justifies our doing violence against them. And we in America needed to feel justified. Now, it's not a question of being objective here. How is it that we feel about ourselves, as Ethan was saying, when we drop bombs uh, on other nations? Now, how does it work? I'm not going to read all of this, but what has happened in uh, America is that we have so in our minds connected Adolf Hitler with Satan that if you want to lead America to war, 
you identify the new enemy with Adolf Hitler. And then it's extremely persuasive. Here are four presidents, note they're a mixture of Democrats and Republicans, all who have played the Hitler card when trying to get America to go to war. Uh, LBJ, it was Vietnam. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, it um, was um, Bosnia, right? And uh, the two George Bushes, it was Iraq. And if you may remember, when the first George Bush was trying to get us to attack Iraq, uh, he kept in his speeches, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and he couldn't pronounce the word Saddam, so he said Saddam, Saddam Hussein, etc. cetera. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, we ended up um, going to war uh, on those four occasions. Uh, here is the conflation. Again, what's going on now? We're drawing a line between good and evil. The enemy, Saddam Hussein, is identified with Adolf Hitler. That justifies uh, bombing uh, his country. I want to say that this, this language is a form of cursing. Now, it doesn't matter whether Saddam Hussein is a good guy or a bad guy. The function of scapegoating is to describe him as evil so that we Americans will bind ourselves together and uh, perform the violence. Uh, justice is a serial killer. Uh, we, we don't go to war for unjust reasons, by the way. I don't know of a war in America's history that we we, we, we went after for injustice. No, we only go to war for justice. Um, okay, this man is saying, oh, not much. Just sitting here sifting through an old scrapbook of past injustices and imagined slights. Whenever you and I are ready to do violence, we've got good reasons. He hit me first. All right. Um, here is uh, Marilyn McCord Adams, a theologian, wrote a book called Horrendous Evils. It's a, it's a, it's a fine book, terrible topic. Um, and uh, she wants to recognize that justice, the pursuit of justice, or what we're calling here self-justification, at the level of the group is deadly. To return horror for horror does not erase but doubles the individual's participation in horrors, first as a victim, then as the one whose injury occasions another, another's um, uh, prima facie ruin. Uh, Jesus keeps saying these enigmatic and impossible things. Somebody hits you on one cheek. Turn the other cheek. Well, what's going on there? He wants to stop the chain of everyone pursuing justice that ends up with a continued unbroken chain of whacking other people uh, in the cheek. <clears throat> the symbols, when it comes to the Christian gospel, are again subtle and they, they, they get turned when we think of Auschwitz, which is a place I happen to have uh, visited, maybe you have as well, 
And remember, Adolf Hitler drew a line between good and evil, placed himself on the good side, played, placed the Jews and actually uh, a number of other groups on the evil side because of his racial hygiene policy. People who were born with uh, uh, mental or physical disabilities were put in the gas chambers, etc. Those victims in Auschwitz are symbolized by the ovens where they burned the, the bodies of those who were executed there. Perhaps a million and a half people, innocent people, died at Auschwitz. One of the prisoners, I had the privilege, by the way, of knowing a prisoner from Auschwitz, but one of the prisoners was a Roman Catholic layperson artist who painted this painting of the suffering Jesus. And note the loincloth is the same as the uniform of the prisoners at Auschwitz. So what he's saying here is that God is present in Auschwitz, not on the side of the dominant Nazis, but on the side of the victims of this gross injustice. That's so important. If you're a Nazi, you draw the line between good and evil, you place yourself on the good side, and Christ is on the side of those who get scapegoated. It's so important that that's where God is when you and I draw the line between good and evil. One part of the message of the gospel is this, no more scapegoats. Or to say it to you and me, you know, we don't have to scapegoat. When we draw the line between good and evil, it, it, it's okay to put ourselves on the evil side of the line, as Ethan was saying in slightly different words. And Jesus, uh, one of his enigmatic uh, remarks is, oh, you want to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Did you notice there's a log in your own eye? It's okay for us to draw a line between good and evil and put ourselves on the evil side. And then the scapegoating goes away. I call this the robust soul, or at least it's one, one characteristic of the robust soul, is to feel the power of that grace and get relieved of the need to draw lines between good and evil and scapegoat somebody on the other side. What is the characteristic of the robust soul? I think it's the life of beatitude. It is possible for us to, my mother taught me the Ten Commandments when I was a kid. Maybe your mother did too. These are the rules that characterize um, uh, the Christian life. Thou shalt do this and don't do that. I sometimes think that if looking at Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes where Jesus is talking about those who are blessed, the word there is makarios, very interesting word, it's not a set of rules. It's a description of someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, someone who is poor in spirit, etc., um, those are the qualities, dramatic to be sure, but I think they're the qualities of a robust soul. And what makes it possible 
Is it that eternal justice that we wanted? It comes free. The Holy Spirit places the just Jesus, the scapegoated Jesus, places the just Jesus within our soul, and that is the redemptive power. Um, it was Martin Luther that gave us the phrase, sin boldly. And the good news of that for the fragile soul is you don't have to always be looking over your shoulder and wondering whether or not you've colored in the letters on your name tag. And uh, Luther has this, this uh, message that he gives uh, be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe even more boldly and rejoice in Christ who is victor over sin, death, and the world. When I say sin boldly, I don't mean continue scapegoating. It really applies to moral dilemmas that you and I might face when either one horn or the other horn, neither one of which are absolutely right. You, you can't avoid um, some negative fallout. The classic case, and I see we're going to have a little breakout workshop on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Again, it's a little dramatic, but, but it's a good illustration. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you may know, um, was uh, part of the Wehrmacht in the Second World War, and he participated in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And his own reasoning was, you know, if Hitler were to die, then the Wehrmacht would collapse, the war would be over, and we would have peace. But the problem is, good Christians don't commit murder. And he participated in this plot. He was caught. Hitler lived. And... Bonhoeffer was executed uh, in Flossenburg. But it's a good example of sitting boldly because he made this moral decision to participate in a sin, namely to commit murder. I had a uh, colleague, uh, an ethicist in Berkeley, who one time, he liked casuistry, and he went through the, the logic of Bonhoeffer and said, well, less people would die if the murder were successful and more people would die if the war continues. Therefore, he made the right decision. And I'd say, Bill, you don't get it. If you interview Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer would say, you know, committing murder is a sin. I can't justify committing murder. It's a sin. I'm going to do it anyway. Because I'm living out of God's grace, and we live in a messy world, and you know what? I don't have to have a fragile soul. I can have a robust soul. So what Bonhoeffer was not doing was drawing a line between good and evil, putting himself on the good side and Hitler on the evil side. He didn't do that. He put himself on the evil side with Hitler and was able to make a free decision of that nature. All right, one final question. My wife Karen and I have just adopted from the Humane Society a little kitty and a little doggy, and uh, we, 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 
you know, have to think big thoughts, but I thought you might enjoy this question, will there be dogs in heaven? And Martin Luther, who does get talked about a little bit, his opinion is yes. God will create a new heaven and a new earth in which Tuprels, that's the, uh, his favorite dog, with hides of gold and fur and silver. That makes it kind of heavy, right? Uh, God will be all in all, and snakes, now poisonous because of original sin, will then be so harmless that we shall be able to play with those snakes. Okay, that's Luther's opinion. Well, let's see about some other opinions. All right, this is Our Lady of Martyrs Catholic Church. All dogs go to heaven. So I think you and I, at least Karen and I, are going to want to worship there. But across the street is the uh, Presbyterian Church. Only humans go to heaven. Read your Bible. God loves all his creatures, dogs included. Dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. <laughs> Catholic dogs go to heaven. Presbyterian dogs could talk to their pastor. Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. I lost it. Oh, my goodness. Let's see here. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, it's that one right there. That one right there. All right. This ends it. All, do all rocks go to... Oh, I'm sorry. It was the one before that I needed to show you. Uh, dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. And then the Catholics say all rocks go to heaven. <laughs> Universalists. Well, thank you very much. Now we're, I know we're behind schedule, but I'd like to invite all of the people giving breakout sessions after our short break coming up um, to come up and just tell us what they're going to be talking about and where. So, Reverend Morton, why don't you begin us? Uh, okay, so I will be talking about justification and time travel, because if I don't, who else will? Um, and we will be talking about this in the crypt, which I think is the absolutely perfect location. So, Morning, everybody. My name is Brian Jarrell, and this is Felina Smith with me. Hi. And uh, we are leading the Newcomers Breakout Session. I'm new here. What's going on? And so uh, many of you are new to Mockingbird. If you have questions, if you uh, want to know more about what uh, the organization is about, why we're here, uh, we are happy to answer some of those questions for you and tell us tell you a little bit about our own experience, too. We'll be meeting in the chapel, just to the left. 
Um, my name's Nick Lannon. I'm associate rector of St. Francis in the Fields Episcopal Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and um, I'm a white male between 27 and 45. I'm in good health, devastatingly attractive. You shouldn't laugh at that part. Um, and yet I find as I live my life that it's impossible. I have all these advantages, um, and yet. And I wonder um, if the Bible, if religion, if you, um, if we have any answers for the impossibility of life. And I find as I read scripture that it just seems to be getting more impossible, not less. And um, hopefully I can, um, through some work and reading and prayer, we can find an answer for the impossibility of life. I don't want to give away the end of my talk, but I suspect that we'll find one. Where are, where are you? Oh, yes. I'm in uh, Olmstead, which is directly beneath your feet, I think, ate. where most of us ate last night. Hi, guys. I'm Sasha Hines speaking with Jacob Smith, and I think we're speaking here, is that yeah. right? Um, we are going to be talking about psychology and theology and how psychology can inform our life as a Christian, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to be looking at this idea of uh, relief kind of uh, how it meets us existentially, how it meets us theologically and psychologically. Kind of, you know, one of the ideas sometimes is like, now that the gospel has set you free, uh, you, what do you want to do? And uh, actually that can be a crushing question to somebody. And so uh, we're going to be kind of looking at how that plays out, you know, and so and uh, I'm very excited about this session to be with my friend Sasha. Awesome. At the very least, it'll be good enough. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, my name is Laurel Marr, and um, the, the name of my talk is Faith in the Fall, Recovering the Cross and Healing Prayer Ministry. And um, <clears throat> Ben DeHart will be sitting in with me, and we'll be meeting in the Sunday school room. And I'll be talking about my own recovery and eating disorders and questioning whether or not um, what's offered uh, faith healing in the church today, if that's sufficient for its parishioners. I'm just a prop. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, right now, it is 10.34. Um, we're going to start in 15 minutes. Uh, so hopefully you have time to use the restroom, grab a little bit more coffee. But uh, that's where we're going to be. And, and lunch will be, instead of 11.45, it'll be right at noon. So enjoy. Oh, if you haven't paid or you want to pay more, <laughs> there should be people at the registration that can take credit cards as well as checks and cash. <laughs> 